listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. On September 11th, 2001, people watched in horror as the second of two passenger planes crashed into the upper stories of the Twin Towers of New York's World Trade Center. Again and again it was replayed on the news, with smoke and flames pouring out of the first tower, another plane appeared and curved in to smash into the second tower. Thousands died that day and thousands more were left reeling with grief, fear and trauma. For many in that city, the scars still remain. Skies went strangely quiet that day as flights were grounded across the continent. And across the continent, churches filled. In New York City, certainly, but also in Washington and San Francisco, Ottawa and Winnipeg. People who had not been through the doors of a church building in decades except perhaps to attend a wedding found themselves attending Sunday worship, prayer vigils, memorial services. Some went seeking answers. Why, God? Why? How could this happen? How could you let this happen? Some simply wanted solace, to know that they were not alone in their fear and their sorrow. Some surely went hoping to awake a holy and righteous anger in the God to whom they prayed. In his address on the evening of 9-11, President George W. Bush assured the nation that the perpetrators of these evil acts, that was his phrase, the perpetrators of these evil acts would be brought to justice, and that, quote, the American economy will be open for business. And then he cited the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. God would offer comfort and solace to the nation, while we, as a strong nation, will set this all right. That's how the message sounded anyways. It wasn't long before other theological perspectives began to be voiced. A well-known TV evangelist said that by America's moral decay, quote, we make God mad. I really believe, he said, that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are trying actively to make an alternative lifestyle... The ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who try to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. In response to that kind of theological perspective, many sermons were preached referencing Luke 13, verse 4, in which Jesus says, and we just heard it, Those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? 
Do you think that those who perished in the Twin Towers were any worse or any better than the rest of us? Do you think that God is angered by American moral failure, in other words, and has used those planes as an expression of the divine vengeance? No. Jesus seemed to be saying through this text from Luke, no, that's not the way it works. At least, that's how this verse was applied in those sermons back in 2001. Not without some good reason. I'm afraid, though, that without attending to the entire passage, including the little parable that follows it, it was a somewhat thin reading of this verse from Luke. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't actually know the precise incident that's in view here. It's quite probable that Pilate had sent soldiers to deal with some Galilean pilgrims who had gone to the Jerusalem temple to offer their required sacrifices. Maybe this group of pilgrims were thought to be nationalists. Maybe they were sympathetic to the zealots. We can't know. But we can surmise that they were killed by Pilate's soldiers in the temple precincts. So their blood was mixed with the blood of the appointed sacrifices. Did you hear about that, Jesus? Did you hear that piece of news? You, you who are so intent now on going to Jerusalem, you you heard that event, didn't you? And he answers them by asking... Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were any worse sinners than any other Galileans? No, I tell you. And then comes that rather unexpected line, one in which Jesus sounds a good deal like John the Baptist. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And then he adds this other event from the news of the day the story of the tower collapsing, the Tower of Siloam. Do you think that those who died in that event were any worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Again, he very clearly says no, but adds again, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Now, the interesting thing is, why does he raise the matter of repentance at this point? What does he mean by saying you will all perish just as they did? What's the through line here? N.T. Wright makes the point that while there has been a tendency to kind of read this as a fire and brimstone warning, that's probably not what's in view here, not in this particular passage. So N.T. Wright comments, in line with the warnings he has issued several times already, Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to change direction, to abandon their crazy flight into national rebellion against Rome, will suffer the consequences. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. If you keep imagining, in other words... 
that the way to the kingdom of God is by resisting and then throwing off the rule of the Roman Empire, you will all perish just as they did. When Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70, Wright continues, it was a direct result of refusing to follow the way of peace, which Jesus had urged throughout his ministry. So the thing, at least in the view of many scholars, the thing that Jesus is calling the people to repent of was their foolhardy nationalism. Repentance, Matt Skinner points out, here and elsewhere in the Bible refers to a changed mind, to a new way of seeing things, to being persuaded to adopt a different perspective. Jesus is pointedly and urgently calling the people to see things with new eyes, to stop seeing them through the eyes of a rebellious nationalism, but rather through his eyes and to adopt his way the way. You see the difference, right? And then he tells them his little parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. And so he said to his gardener or vine dresser, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig round it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. That's where the parable ends. Again, it's easy to hear the echoes of John the Baptist, right? John, who'd said, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Difference, though, is that the even now of John the Baptist has become the let it alone for one more year of Jesus' parable. There remains an urgency, of course. After all, the fig tree had been barren for three years and was being given just one more. But that one more, what a gift. What an act of grace. In fact, rather than seeing this little parable as a parable of judgment, which is what it sounds like at first glance, Robert Ferrer Capon counts it as one of Jesus' parables of grace. It is the vine dresser, the gardener, who is the Christ figure here, Capon insists. It is precisely because he invites the owner of the vineyard into forbearance and forgiveness that the barren fig tree continues to live by grace. Aphis. That's the word, aphis. The word the gardener speaks to the vineyard owner. In our reading, it was translated as, let it alone. Let it be, in other words, for a year. But it could have just as well been translated, forgive it. In fact, aphis, forgiveness, is the very word uttered by Jesus from the cross when he says, Father, forgive aphis them, for they know not what they do. Same word. And so Capon continues. 
The vine dresser who on the cross says Aphes to his Lord and Father comes to us with his own body dug deep by nails and spears and his own being made dung by his death and he sends our roots resurrection. He does not come to see if we are good. He comes to disturb the caked conventions by which we pretend to be good. He comes only to forgive and to do so on no basis because like the fig tree, we are too far gone to have a basis. What begins as a teaching on the need to repent of the kind of saber-rattling nationalism that would surely end in disaster, and to instead follow the self-sacrificing way of peace that Jesus embodied in the whole of his life, ends up being a proclamation of grace. For all that there's still urgency in his voice which yet calls for changed minds and changed hearts that will actually bear fruit, it's still wildly gracious because this gardener is the one prepared to do all of the work to make it all possible, right? You can't just say to a fig tree, repent. The gardener goes to work on the fig tree to forgive it, and help it bear fruit. I began the sermon talking about those events of 9-11, so I think it's only fair to end by asking if this gospel text has something to speak into that event or into the current war in Syria, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, the 2013 factory collapse in Bangladesh. Does it say anything to any of those? Well, yes, it does. It says that our world is marked by tragedy, both natural and of human making. Those whose lives have been lost or scarred in such events were no better, no worse than any of the rest of us. They just were. And to try to make a moral accounting of those kind of events as if it was a punishment for sin is simply not on. It's not on in the gospel. It's not on biblically. What is on in this gospel is the gardener who from the cross looks at those who would see him dead and says, Aphis, forgive them. And through whom, as Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, through whom God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. For all of the sorrow of 9-11 and of Syria, Haiti, and Bangladesh, in the end, even those deaths don't have the final or ultimate word. The gardener does. And this gardener's final word is, Aphis, forgive. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church, 
or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.